Okay, today my guest is Professor David Collis. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about David as a person. Professor Collis is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Collis is a fellow of the International Academy of Management. He is an expert on corporate strategy and global competition. He co-authored or authored several best-selling books on international strategy and corporate headquarters. Is the winner of the 50th anniversary McKinsey Award for the best article in Harvard Business Review in 2008. His work has been frequently published in Harvard Business Review, Academy of Management Journal, Strategic Management Journal, among others. He has written over 100 cases and articles. He was recognized as HBR's best-selling author in 2010 with over 250,000 reprints sold. In 2012, uh, HBR ranked his paper with Cynthia Montgomery as one of the top 25 most cited articles of all time. David was also recognized as one of the top 100 most influential textbook authors by the Academy of Management, Learning and Education. Thank you, David, for joining us. Well, thank you, my pleasure. Uh, David, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? A number of different things. I probably started out wanting to be a farmer. My mother's family were farmers. My uncle used to go on holiday to the farm, so a farmer, then a physicist. Um, and then as I sort of migrated from maths to physics to economics, that's when uh, I began to think more about um, uh, sort of business strategy and so on. But the truth is my father was an academic. He was a professor at Birmingham University. So in the background, there was always, I'm going to be an academic. So you grew up in England? In Birmingham, yeah. Okay. And uh, what was the first earliest moment of awareness between foreign versus domestic for you? Uh, when I was nine years old, we began to go summer holidays in Europe. And probably the first thing I remember is policemen were called gendarmes. And somehow, you know, that's, you know, I'm not a linguist at all, but I began to think of the policemen as gendarmes. You know, I didn't think of them as policemen, they were gendarmes. And that to me was sort of beginning to understand the, the world through another perspective. The, and so it was nine years old, yeah, traveling around France. And uh, uh, how did you choose academia? Again, because my father was a professor. In the background, I think I always knew I sort of wanted to be one. The, but I'll be honest, the, if you do well at school, there's a little bit of an escalator like this. It's not that difficult. You know, I did well at school. I went to Cambridge. I did well at Cambridge. I came to Harvard. You, know, it's, it's, you don't have to struggle to choose to do it um it's it's sort of a path that's relatively easy to take and how did you choose this particular field in strategy ib uh, focusing on competition how, how did you choose this particular area um well except i i do you know i'm i'm a strategy person that what happened to me is i lucked out in that I was here at the Harvard Business School in the late 70s when Mike Porter was just beginning to do um, all the original work that became competitive strategy and competitive advantage. 
And I went to work at BCG um, in London in the late 70s, early 80s. So I just lucked out. I hit the very beginning of strategy as the strategy field. So I've done a whole lot of stuff. I mean, within that, yes, I've done corporate and global strategy. Um, the Why did I end up focusing there? Um, you know, there are a lot of people doing core strategy, business unit, competitive strategy stuff. And I was more drawn to the complexities of creating value across businesses, across geographies. And then again, of course, because I'm English and I'm in American context, I'm by definition international. You know, I've worked in Europe, I've worked in South Africa. Um, so I have the I don't want to say cosmopolitan, but I have the interest in that. And those things conspired to lead me down a path of, yeah, both corporate and global international strategy. Interesting. Um, something that is not on your CV, but people might find interesting. Um, I made a note here. Um, what did I say? Oh, yes. Um, back to being cosmopolitan. Yeah, my wife is from New Zealand. My daughter-in-law is from Japan. So I sort of come from or have built for <laughs> around me has come a very cosmopolitan family. Um, so I think that's not apparent in my CV because it's family related. But, you know, that's an important part of who I am, what I am. If you stop doing what you're doing today, what would you uh, do? What's the second best alternative career path for you? Um, you know, at one time, at one time. Um, this is when I was leaving the Boston Consulting Group and coming back to do a PhD at Harvard. I did think about going into business, you know, becoming a manager. Um, that's a little bit like an alternative universe. You know, I would have gone in a completely different direction. Um, you know, it's not that I regret it because I enjoy what I do, but that would have been an alternative path. Um, you know, it's too late now, I think. Well, it is too late for me to do it, but that would have plausibly... And again, I don't know how good I would have been as a manager, but the, I did sort of consider, let me actually go and do these things rather than just talk about them and research them. You know, take accountability, take responsibility, you know, actually show you can do this stuff. But I never did it. No, it's not too late. Christos Pitelis, uh, in his interview, he talks about thinking of doing a cafe. <laughs> uh, why not? Uh, I mean, what would you do? What would you manage? Um, you know, the you know back then, this is like thirty years ago. You know, yeah, it was. I, I don't know who who did I? I didn't. Uh, did I talk to? I talked to British Oxygen. That was about the one company I did. You know, since then, some opportunities have come up. Um, the, the, you know, the you have. I think the next question is about regrets or something. I turned yeah. down a job offer at Apple in about 2006. Oh. And had I done that, of course, I'd be a lot wealthier than I am now. But yeah, I, I never, I, no, I never really serious, you know, it was, it was a consideration, but I never seriously thought about it. Well, it's not a regret thing though. I mean, uh, at the time it was a great decision to, to stay, obviously. Uh, yeah, no, it's, biggest... not, it's not a regret. I mean, you know, one can only do one thing with one's life, really. You can't do everything. You know, have a nice and appealing it might have been. And again, I don't know whether I mean any good at it, but you can't do everything. You have to make some choices and no regrets. No, because I've absolutely loved what I've done. It's just that there was an alternative universe where maybe I could have done that. Yeah. But Apple, I mean, that, that's, that, that would be something. That <laughs> would be... Uh... 
Uh, about failure, well, what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Um, yeah, the big, biggest failure is I didn't get tenure at Harvard. I came up for tenure. Uh, I was denied tenure. Um, what did I learn from it? You know, you just keep going, keep going with what you do. So I went down to Yale for five years and then I was invited to come back to Harvard. And I've been here for the last, what, 20 years. Um, you know, at the time when you don't get tenure. Yeah, it's pretty upsetting. And um, But no, I've spent the last 20 years of my life here. Um, and just keep going, I think, is the lesson. You know, if you if you enjoy what you're doing, if you if um, why not? But keep going, keep going. Uh, what are you most passionate about? Sorry. What are you most passionate about? Oh, um, what I'm most passionate about. Um, that's tougher. I'm British. British people don't get passionate about much. That <laughs> um, I, you know, the one thing I. I I was thinking about a little bit is, and this is, and I hate to say sort of criticism of Americans, you know, I don't know what percentage of Americans have passports, but the two things I find a little bit frustrating, you know, not so much in the, obviously in the Harvard community and so on, but America writ large and is, you know, no sense of history, no sense of, um, you know, geography in some sense that, you know, they really have a, don't have a broader awareness of where we've come from, how different people look at the world differently. Um, and I think that's a, a real problem for, you know, in, in this country, in America, um, that I wish Americans had more of a perspective about the world and history. Um, you know, that's something, not that I do much about it, but, you know, that's something I do think um, is, is is problematic uh, in America. Uh, David, before, the, uh, before we started recording, we were talking like a chit chat uh, and I told you, you communicate very well. Uh, how, how, I would like to uh, talk about some research now. Hmm. Um, how do you explain your research? How do you explain the importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Or how do you, and then later on, how do you communicate with these managers and how do you write these HBR um, uh, papers that are right. so clear, so crisp? Okay. Um, two slightly different questions. That, yeah, you know, if I was, again, because I, I, think, I think what I've done is corporate and global strategy. The, so if I think the, what's sort of the value of that, the, yeah, one level I would talk about, it's that I help people understand how to create value across markets. You know, whether this is diversification, creating value across businesses or international global strategy, how do we create value across countries, across geographies? That's sort of the principle of what I think I have done. Um, why do I think it matters to people? Um, you know, if you particularly take the global one, um, yeah, you know, it brings benefits. So that, you know, if we think about people in a, you know, in an emerging market, what does global strategy do for you? It brings you access to products or services you would not otherwise have had. You know, that's what the multinationals can bring into your country. And at the same time, it potentially offers you, you know, jobs. Um, uh, you know, if they build a facility there or um, as they build their infrastructure in your country. Um, so it's not just creating value for shareholders, creating that, you know, social welfare. You as an individual, 
individual are better off in, again, you know, someone in an emerging market because you have access to products or services you wouldn't otherwise have because you have access to jobs, careers you wouldn't otherwise have had. So that's sort of the value, I think, um, of, of, of hopefully what I'm doing. Um, the other question about the communication, um, the, that's slightly different. Um, that, I think, comes from starting from the perspective. You ask about HBR and sort of practitioners, and they are a different audience than other academics. And so I do think the way you have success, if I can say I have any success there, is by starting from what's the problem they're addressing. And that is not necessarily an academic question. Um, and that's what requires you to be out and about talking with executives and, you know, plug for the Harvard Business School. That's sort of the, the comparative advantage of the Harvard Business School. You know, the, the fact that we start from practitioner related problems, we have access to practitioners and companies. And so you, that's where you begin. You know, what are the issues they're wrestling with and how can you help them? rather than here's an academic discipline and a subject and, you know, it's getting narrower and narrower. How can I move it the next step forwards? That, to be honest, is not how you have success with a, a practitioner audience. Uh, about, let's just tie that uh, thing to uh, IB research, formal IB research, uh, things that we have neglected, uh, areas we have not covered enough, uh, omitted uh, variables, uh, in IV research, what can you say about that? Um, hmm. Um, yeah, omitted variables. Um, do you know, I mean, I think the issue with IV research is not so much omitted variables. I mean, it's in, it, it, it is, what are the, what's the problem you're trying to address? You know, back to what I was just saying, the motivation, um, the what is it you're trying to study in the first place rather than exactly how you're trying to study it um you know again sort of a little bit you know when we're talking to people about the advantage and the perspective and the difference between the harvard business school and elsewhere it's because i've taught at columbia and yale and the you know i think what tends to happen, unfortunately, in academia is you get trained up on a methodology and, you know, within a discipline. And, you know, that's the tool you then take and you sort of somehow try and find a problem where applying that methodology gets you an academic publication. Um, and to me, that's the wrong way around, you know, and that's sort of what's missing a bit in IB. The, again, back to what I said before, rather than that, you start from what's the problem? You know, what are the issues that managers, multinational managers are, are facing? And then you go back and you say, what's a methodology or a toolbox or an approach that will actually help solve that problem? So rather than working from the methodology, you know, in search of a problem, I can find a publication. You start with the problem and you work back and you say, oh, what of all the different techniques and you know, methodologies would be the one that's most useful for helping solve? It might be a survey it might be an empirical whatever it is but you work back from the problem rather than forwards from the methodology and I, I you know yeah that would be my critique more than oh no we're missing this omitted variable or that omitted variable okay uh, let me follow up on that one what are some of the problems that are being discussed now in the in the practitioner side 
that are not really coming or trickling down to the research side. To the research. Uh, for the next five to 10 years, maybe these will be fruitful areas of, of research. What can you say about that? Um, yeah. Um, again, I have the direct answer to you and then the sort of more indirect one, which is sort of what I'm trying or what, what I'm trying to do. Um, the direct one is, um, I don't know, you know, I, I'm just like this morning, last couple of days, I've been talking with executives at one of the very big Chinese companies about the issues they're facing. Um, you know, so what are they doing, you know, global strategy wise? The, you know, it's one where they're trying to build a brand. They've been very successful OEM. Now they're trying to, as an emerging market, multinational create a brand. You know, that's an interesting set of questions. You know, we sort of had the Japanese who did it, you know, the Samsungs have done it. But, you know, particularly when we see the emerging, you know, multinationals coming from emerging markets, the question of how they build a brand rather than just capitalize on their low labor cost or arbitrage and advantage from their home country. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, they're wrestling with issues of global organization. Um, again, ones we've talked about in the past, you know, what is the appropriate organization design here? That's rather dropped out of the IB literature, I think. Um, and then what else? Digital transformation, you know, which is more general than IB related. Um, but that's one of the big issues that they're, you know, how do we incorporate DTC into the traditional retail? How do we build omni-channel? Um, and, you know, those are current for them, obviously, in China. Uh, it's more complicated when you add in, we've got to do it around the world. Um, so those are some of the things that we're talking about. Um, when it comes to me and to my sort of, I'll be honest, I've done corporate, I've done global. What I think I'm trying to do, or a few of us here are trying to unify both of those. Um, why? Because they're addressing exactly the same question, which is ultimately how do you create value across markets? whether a market is a business or a country. And a lot of the issues are exactly the same. And yet the two don't really speak to each other very much. Um, you know, organization design. Um, you know, th there's a big literature in IB around subsidiary. You know, in the old days, there was a big literature in centralization, decentralization of corporate strategies. Um, you know, that's one example of um, where, yeah, there are parallel research streams that have not quite been unified or shared enough. Um, so that happens to be the one I'm thinking about a lot right now, which is the how can we unify or that's that's too ambitious. What can we arbitrage from one literature to the other literature? You know, some of the most successful work has been arbitrage, like Mike Porter was arbitrage. He took industrial organization economics and arbitraged it into the strategy field. Um, so there's, I think, some opportunity to arbitrage corporate strategy lessons into international and vice versa. Sure. <clears throat> About... Um... I asked this question to many of my uh, guests. Um, there's this camp of group of people who uh, believe globalization is going to be continuing. And uh, another camp is saying, well, actually, it is the uh, populism and the nationalism which is going to be taking over most of the, uh, the parts of the globe. 
Mm. Uh, what's your take on it? What's the evolution, in your opinion? Where yeah. are we evolving into? Um, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a prognosticator, certainly in the short term. Um, you know, on the other hand, going back to my perspective, so historical perspective, I mean, you know how, you know, we only surpass degrees of global integration from before the First World War in like the late 70s or something, you know, the, we've gone through cycles. There was the, again, very different sort of globalization, colonialism and so on. Um, before the First World War, there was that horrible period, you know, in the Great Depression and um, protectionism in the 30s, you know, then the growth again after the Second World War. Um, and we're currently in, yeah, a little bit of, you know, some downturn and some, as you say, you know, regression, I would say, to protectionism and so on, nationalism. Um, on the, you know, on the other hand, we never went, and Pankaj Gemawat was very big on this, we never went very far in complete globalization. You know, his view of the semi-globalized world, where he had at one time the 10% presumption, um, you know, this wonderful little piece where he had, um, if you look, defined, you know, complete integration as 100%. So what would be complete integration? For something like students at the Harvard Business School, it would be the class composition represents just the population composition around the world. Um, and, you know, he looked at a number of those sorts of variables and argued it was roughly 10%, even in the heyday, even in the peak of globalization. Um, and, you know, so we never got really completely integrated anyway. Um, and if you look at the sweep of history and these cycles, yeah, my, my guess would be, yeah, we might be in a bit of a downturn, but in, if you take a 20 year perspective, there's, we'll go back again and there's still a lot more integration, globalization to go. And I would certainly hope that's the case. I would hope that's the case, even if I can't predict it. Thank you. Uh, who was your advisor when you were going through the PhD program? Um, program? Yeah, no, I, you know, I was really lucky. As I said, I went through the early stages. Specifically, I had Dick Caves, who was, you know, he wrote one of the very original books on multinational enterprise and economy. And, and he was a mentor to a very large number of PhD students, Dick Caves. I had Mike Spence, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Um, I had Mike Porter, who I suspect everyone listening knows, and I had um, Pankaj Gemawat. Um, so could I have had a better suite of uh, PhD advisors? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, each one of those is, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. And what was the best advice you received from them? Um, that's what the best advice I received from them. Um, I don't know. Um, I wasn't a very good PhD student as part of the problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not a great academic is what it comes down to. Um, I had an RA here um, called Toby Stewart, who's now an incredibly successful academic. You know, he tenure at Chicago, Columbia, here, Berkeley now, and hopefully coming back to us at Harvard. And I always remember telling Toby when he was my RA, you know, don't look at what I do. I'm not a good academic. <laughs> um, and sort of why am I not a good academic? Um, you know, and this is, I think, a frustration of Dick Caves in particular. Um, 
I and yeah, this is a reflection. I think I approached academia in from the perspective of I'll learn for myself. I'll understand how the world works for myself. And when you have that perspective, getting to academic publication and dotting the I's and crossing the T's and going through the revise and resubmit process and all of that is, is sort of not where you want to spend your time. You've already got it. Uh, you know, I, yeah, look, I get it. You know, the, and then you want to move on to something else. And that is not a real academic. Um, and so, yeah, I've had some, yeah, academic publications, but, you know, I've not really been an, uh, an academic in the traditional sense, which probably is why I didn't get tenure here originally. But the, um, so, um, you know, advice, you know, no, I mean, I, I, I was always plowing my own path a little bit, you know, again, I lucked out, you know, just that list of people, Mike Spence, Nobel Prize in economics, Mike Porter, probably the most cited person in the strategy field, Pankaj Gemawat, you know, huge contributor to both competitive and global strategy, um, you know, and Dick Caves, who was the original economist who, you know, looked at multinational enterprises, um, just being with them, just and catching the early wave. Um, that was, that's my, the secret of my success, not nothing I've done. Um, and just the osmosis being around them, I think. Um, that's nothing, one particular piece of advice, but just being in that media. Thank you. This was, um, uh, this, this was helpful. Uh, I, I mean, humility aside, uh, uh, you, you've done a lot, you, you accomplished a lot, but uh, what are some of the things that you would say to junior faculty, uh, PhD students uh, all around the world uh, about what not to do? You are not to do. Um, you know, a little bit, this gets back to what I said earlier. And this is my perspective. And again, you have to understand this is, comes from someone who I don't think I'm a real academic. Um, I've done a lot more sort of practitioner oriented stuff, um, you know, and whatever is a hundred and something cases, which, you know, 95% are all field cases. I mean, I, again, back to, I, I start from the problem and work back. Um, so, yeah, you know, that sort of would be my advice. Um, you know, it's sort of unfortunate it happens in any discipline, any research field over time. It gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, and it takes longer and longer. You know, when I was doing my PhD, we got through in two, th in three years. You know, now a PhD is what, six years? Um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, you have to do it, obviously, if you want to be an academic, um, and you learn a lot, you know, far more method, methodologically rigorous than I ever was or am. Um, but don't lose sight of, you know, what you're trying to do at the end of the day, which I hope is, you know, yes, improve our understanding of the world, but use that to actually improve in some ways, you know, social welfare, you know, improve performance, um, and, and never lose sight of at the end of the day. Yeah, and even an academic paper, I think, you know, there should be some, even if it's not explicit in the academic paper, but there should be some greater purpose or value behind what you're trying to do here. Um, it is so easy to get 
well, not easy, but you know, you go down this path of I've got to get an academic publication out, and it's the publication that becomes an end in itself, not the lesson or anything. It's the you know, yes, there it is. I've got my you know four or five, whatever it is, good journal articles. Yeah, but what do they say? What do they contribute? You know, what is you know your question? If you showed it to the man in the street. What would they learn from this? Never lose sight of that. Thank you. This was very informative. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, David. Okay. Thank you.